0: Alright, hey guys, and welcome back to Authentic Christianity. In this episode, I'm going to be handling some shotgun apologetics. Um, This piece comes to me from a gentleman I'm going to call Mr. A uh, in a forum that I participate on in Yonder Facebook, and he was in a discussion about the Bible and whether Catholics like the Bible at all. And he basically said this. If the Bible is a Catholic book, then why did they omit the following? Saying mass, consecrating bread, turning wine into blood, a Eucharist, baptizing babies, hearing confession, confirming anyone, last rites, asking Mary to intercede, Mary as the new Eve, Mary as the Ark, praying to saints, uh, a papacy, purgatory novena, monks, nuns, etc., etc. Now, the problem with shotgun apologetics is it's really designed as a rebuttal for when you want to shut down discussion, rather than have a discussion. It's designed to not facilitate the free exchange of ideas amongst people who are seeking to reason together, uh, but instead it seeks to simply bury people under such a mountain of stuff that it's almost not worth digging out. But I decided because I'm kind of a masochist sometimes that I'd go ahead and write a response to this. So I spent about an hour and a half, two hours coming up with a basic response and I could definitely do a lot longer. In fact, even just one of these, you know, praying to the saints and, and, and Mary, I've got a 30 minute video on going through all of the scriptural stuff. And in fact, I'm going to cite that here in a little bit. I decided to keep Mr. A anonymous just because I didn't know uh, if he wants to be um, well known or not, but I'm going to put this on the channel, obviously in the podcast podcast. Um, so again, I will leave him anonymous. I blurred out his information here, um, so that he is not being, uh, doxxed unnecessarily. I believe he's in the Philippines anyway. So for most people, it wouldn't even, wouldn't matter, but, um, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do a line by line refutation. I'm going to show you where in the Bible, all of these things is, uh, all of these things are note. There's actually one of them that I couldn't find in the Bible. <sighs> but we'll get there. So I'm, I'm already, I'm going to concede a little bit of ground uh, to Mr. A, uh, but, but Mr. A, if you're watching this, uh, in exchange for conceding that ground, I need you to answer a question for me. I'm going to, I'm going to ask the question at the very, very end of this. And it's just a very, very simple question that I ask. Um, I've asked every single Protestant this question and nobody has actually come back with an answer yet. Um, I can fathom a few potential ideas. Um, but nobody's even come up with one of those. And so I'm going to ask you this question and maybe you can help me because at the end of the day, yeah, I'm a Catholic, um, but I am open to the truth. Uh, the reason I'm Catholic is I honestly believe that it's the truth. And uh, that's, that's why I'm here. It's why I do what I do. It's why I dedicate hours of my time uh, to doing what is hopefully received as a charitable refutation of your shotgun apologetics. And again, the big issue with shotgun apologetics is this probably took him about a minute maybe to type out. Um and just to write the replies took me over an hour, hour and a half. Um, and again, these weren't even the most thorough replies you could have given. I could talk for an hour on almost any of these topics, um, without exhausting the things I could say about them. Um, but I'm going to try and just give the highlights to show, at the very least, Catholic beliefs other than one are biblical, uh, biblically based. And in fact, square with scripture, probably more than you would imagine. So uh, we're going to scroll down here and I'm going to actually bulk a few of these together. So for instance, saying the mass, consecrating bread, turning wine into blood, the Eucharist, all of those are really talking about the same thing. Also, Mary interceding and praying to the saints kind of are together as well. Um, So I'm going to bulk group those together. Uh, down below as well. So this first one is saying the mass, consecrating bread, turning wine into blood, a Eucharist. Now this is obviously foreshadowed in the Passover, uh, a perpetual ordinance that one had to partake of in order to be in the covenant. So, you know, if you were a Jew and you didn't like lamb, God, I just don't want to eat it. You were out. Like you had to partake of the lamb. It was a perpetual sacrifice. Uh, it was a memorial sacrifice. And this kind of memorial meant more than just remembering. Right when, when when the Jews would eat the Passover, they don't say when when the Lord took us out of uh, Egypt many many years ago. It says when the Lord brought me out of Egypt. It takes the past and makes it present, and so too the Eucharist. It makes the once for all sacrifice of Christ present. We do it because Jesus said to do it. He said, "Do this." In remembrance of me. He actually didn't say to write anything. In fact, Jesus didn't write anything but one thing. The only thing we have record of him writing, uh, and they, the the scripture writer doesn't even let us know what it was. It's just that he knelt down and 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 fingered in the sand when they brought him the woman caught in adultery. And uh, he writes it on the ground that people are going to walk over, the wind's going to blow over, and and that was it. But he does give commands, do this in memory of me. Go and baptize and teach, right? So we do it because Jesus says, this is my body. He doesn't say, this is a symbol of my body, or this is a symbol of my blood. And in fact, this is the only time he mentions the blood of the new covenant or the new covenant at all. This is the unique time uh, in the context of the Passover meal, um, when he himself, we know, is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and of course, the lamb was the crucial part of the Passover meal that you actually would eat. And incidentally, some people pointed out they leave rejoicing before the Passover meal is done. So they're singing the Hallel Psalm, um, which means they probably left before they ate the lamb, um, but they would have eaten the bread that Jesus gave to them. And the bread he said was his body. And we just take him quite literally. Now, we can talk a lot more about this if you want. Uh, this is one of those topics that there's just an inexhaustible wealth. But you have to admit, at the very least, the surface reading favors the Catholic position. Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. If you go to John 6, the latter half of John 6 is the whole discourse, the the bread of life discourse. And in that bread of life discourse, um, what we see is Jesus says over and over and over again, you must eat my body and drink my blood or you do not have life in you and at one point they understand him the jews understand him figuratively they say well, this doesn't make sense isn't this the carpenter's son and he just keeps repeating himself and they start to understand him literally how can this man give us his flesh to eat and then he goes so over-the-top literal, the word in Greek he uses is trogon, uh, which literally means to to gnaw, to chew, to masticate, to bite uh, between the teeth. Unless you chew on my flesh, you have not life in you. Um, And so he says this over and over again. And then famously, and I always remember this one, uh, I'm a Catholic. Catholics don't know their Bible, but this one always stands out. John 6, 6, 6, 6. Uh, verse 66, many of them left him over this teaching saying it was a hard saying. People have a hard time understanding how you can give your body and blood. But at the same thing, you know, if you were a person, in in the time of Jesus, and you saw him walking down the street, you would have had a very hard time understanding that this guy in front of you, the carpenter's son, is God incarnate. In fact, my gut says if you were to, you know, go poke him with a needle and, and take a drop of his blood, put it under a microscope, you wouldn't see God particles floating around in there. Doesn't mean he wasn't God. It just means he was God incarnate, right? Um, and so when we receive the Eucharist, you see, it's the same thing. I don't see anything about this that makes it look like more than just bread and wine, but I trust Jesus when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. And so did the entire early church. Thus we see, you know, as early as Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, um, to fellowship and the breaking of the bread and prayer. That breaking of the bread is the Eucharist. They did it regularly. In fact, Jesus uh, meets the apostles or the disciples that are on the road to Emmaus, and he breaks bread with them. And I love that passage. If you ever get a chance to read it, if you haven't, I'm sure you have, Um, But in that passage, they don't recognize him. They're kept from understanding who he was until he breaks bread with them. And then what it says was he vanished from their sight. It doesn't say he left them. It says he vanished from their sight because he was still there with them. And they recognized him in the breaking of the bread uh, in the celebration of the Eucharist. Paul is emphatic. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord on the night that he was betrayed took the bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also the cup after supper this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink of it and remember to me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the lord that basically means you're guilty of murder um, therefore let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. I think that's as clear as you need to be, right? Paul is absolutely, uh, emphatically clear here, um, that the, the The Eucharist is the body and blood, and in fact, he even says people are, are receiving unworthily, and that 's why many of them are weak, ill, and even dying now is this literal death? Is this spiritual death i don 't know. Uh, we do know some people like uh, it Ananias and Sapphira, was that who it was uh, in Acts is at Acts six I think it is uh were caught lying and, and keeping money back, and for that, the Holy Spirit struck them dead because they were lying to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Peter Peter denounces them, right? Um, so this could have been physical death. It doesn't mean it always is the case that people physically die, just like the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. You weren't supposed to touch it um, if you weren't a Levite. And the Philistines captured the Ark at one point, and they're not all struck dead, though a plague of... <laughs> uh i believe the 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 word in the english translation i've seen that's really funny is hemorrhoids um but some sort of a bulbous cancer or whatever was upon them uh and then they returned it but it didn't strike him dead but there was a, a man who wasn't a levite named uzzah uh and one at one point the the ark is falling i think this is in samuel um and he reaches out to steady the ark and is struck dead for touching it because he wasn't supposed to touch the ark because he was not a levite so we know that at least sometimes uh god does that it doesn't mean he always does but does mean he does um, so there, there's that. So uh to answer your question up here, you know, saying mass, consecrating bread, turning wine into blood, a Eucharist, this is what the early church did. I can find you first century documents um, from people uh including you know Clement of Rome, who is mentioned by Paul in his letter, Ignatius, who was a bishop of Antioch, trained by Saint John himself and appointed as bishop in Antioch by Saint Peter himself, uh, speaking of the Eucharist. Um, and, and being insistent that it is the body and blood of Jesus. It's actually St. Ignatius in the, the, the end of the first century beginning of the second century. Who's our first written recording of the word Catholic. Um, but he doesn't use it in a way where he's like saying, I'm hereby defining this church that we belong to as the Catholic church. No, he's simply saying, you know, wherever the Bishop is, you know, there's the Catholic church. That's what he's saying. Um, and yeah, he's just using it. Like it's a word that everyone understood because it was And the word Catholic just means universal. Anyway, infant baptism, um, all right, so I'm going to go again, I'm going to go quickly over these, but I'm going to show you my notes here. Um, first off, we know that baptism foreshadows, uh, or rather circumcision foreshadows baptism. In the old covenant, initially it was given to everybody, Abraham, uh, all babies, eight days old and older, which is interesting because actually it takes about eight days for babies to start, uh, blood clotting. And so even today we don't, if you're gonna have your child circumcised, they wait eight days. Um, and if you, um, in a lot of hospitals, they're offer what's called a vitamin K shot and vitamin K is one of the things that your body starts producing that allows you to have your blood clot. But for the first week of life, babies don't have that naturally. And so, um, they give that to them so that if your baby is injured, he doesn't have a high chance of bleeding out and, and dying. Babies are basically hemophiliacs for the first, um, For the first week of their life, which is just interesting. Right. And I don't know if this is something people would have known in general. But anyway, it was initially given to everybody. Right. Even old men. Abraham was 99. Ishmael was 13 um, when all of this happened. But over time, the vast majority of people that were circumcised were only babies because there just weren't a lot of Jewish converts in that day baptism replaces circumcision. In uh, Colossians, uh, Paul says this, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So it is baptism that replaces circumcision. And so in the Old Covenant, when we see entire households being baptized, these entire households include children eight days old and older, so too when we see children being circumcised or Baptized in the New Testament, you're going to see entire households here in in just a minute, um, and so and, and, and in the initial wave of Christians, it was quite natural. Um, for adults and children to be baptized because you would have had a lot of converts, just like in the original uh, moments of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, uh, when you would have had entire households, men, uh, boys, and, and infants uh, being, being circumcised. So we see in Acts 10, Peter baptizes the entire house of Cornelius, which again, the entire house, the oikos, uh, includes children and young infants. Uh, there isn't a single word in scripture about baptism being limited to adults. So this very belief is, is at the very least non-scriptural. Um, Paul baptizes Lydia and her entire household. The word household again, oikos, means a house that includes children. And in fact, Paul baptizes uh, the entire house based on Lydia's faith, not the faith of the members of the household. This demonstrates that parents can present their children for baptism based on the parent's faith, not the children's faith. And this actually squares with two other passages in scripture that I don't have marked down here. One of them is Mark 2, where the friends bring Jesus a paralytic. And if you read the text, what it says is Jesus saw the friends, and when he saw their faith. He said to the boy, your sins are forgiven. So he forgave the boy's sins based on the faith of the people who brought him to Jesus. And then Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 7, um, he gives guidelines that, you know, the unbelieving spouse, if they're not willing to live with a Christian, then they can separate and the spouse is free to get remarried in that situation because it wasn't a valid sacramental marriage. But in general, marriages should not be um, ended. And so once you're married, if you're a Christian and you're married, you're married for life. Um, but he says, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to keep living with you, then by all means keep living with you because the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse and so are the children. So this even squares with what St. Paul says. Paul baptizes a jailer and uh, his entire household, again with children. Uh, and we see baptism is never limited to adults uh, and those of the age of reason. You can actually see all of these verses, Luke nineteen nine, John 4, 53, 11 14, 1 Corinthians 1 16, uh, 1 Timothy 1 uh, or sorry, 1 Timothy 3 12, Genesis 31, 41 for Old Testament reference, 36 6, 41, 51, and Joshua 24, etc. Where you'll see oikos, so this is if you're looking at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, always or almost generally always can, includes children in the in the passage Uh, and of course in first corinthians uh, 1 16 paul baptizes the entire household of stephanus as well so infant baptism just makes sense especially if baptism actually is work actually works actually is a thing uh and and scripture is pretty clear that baptism is efficacious in fact saint peter says baptism now saves you in in one peter three Right. Uh hearing confessions, this one is pretty straightforward. In John 21, John 20, 21 and 22, uh, we read this. Um, Jesus re- appears to his remaining 11 apostles and he says, as the father sent me, so too do I send you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, this is authority that he gives to certain people in Scripture, not everybody, but certain people in Scripture. Um, his his 11 remaining apostles. And um, he gives us authority to to forgive sins, but also to retain sins. Now, how are they going to know whether they should forgive the sins or retain the sins? Well, they got to know what the sins are. Right. And so here you see, uh, and we actually see other places in scripture um, in the letter of uh, James, I believe it is. Uh, we we see a strong encouragement. James is writing to the presbyters, the elders. Uh, the word in English priest is just a, a Middle English contraction of the word presbyter. Um, and he tells them to confess their sins to one another. Right. So this actually is a thing, too. And in fact, in that passage in Mark, chapter two, um, they take umbrage at Jesus when he says, your sins are forgiven. Uh, and he says, so that you may know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. Now, obviously the son of man is a title for Christ. Uh, it harkens back to the prophecies in Daniel, but it also is a title that means the son of Adam, right? So a son of Adam has authority to forgive sins. And here is Jesus imparting this authority to his apostles. So yeah, hearing confessions is definitely a thing. That was practiced in the early church, and it's right here in scripture. Confirming anyone. This one's funny because this one is pretty explicit in scripture as well. Uh, We see lots of different places where people had been baptized but not yet received the Holy Spirit, and then hands are laid on them, and when hands are laid on them, the Holy Spirit comes in. Uh, Acts 8, 14 and following. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for it had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the people of Samaria were baptized in Christ, but they hadn't received the fullness of the Spirit until they were confirmed by the elders. Interestingly, going back to baptism and being efficacious, at one point, uh, Paul meets people, uh, and in fact, it might even be this uh, passage. Actually, you know what? It is this passage. Never mind. I copied and pasted in here already. Um, this is Acts 19. When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples who said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we never even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 of them in all. So, If baptism is just a sign, then, you know, it's just a symbol. There's really no reason to do this. It just would have been perfunctory. Oh, they'd already been dipped in water. They'd already been baptized. You know, it's not really necessary to do it again, but they do it right. They believed, but they still hadn't been baptized. And so they are baptized. And then Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the Holy spirit. And so we see, uh, multiple instances of confirmation right there in scripture last rites, uh, also called the anointing of the sick um, or extreme unction. Um, this harkens all the way back to Jesus. Uh, he gives the apostles authority. Uh, Mark six thirteen says, they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, uh, and many that were sick were healed. The apostles anointed the sick with oil and cured them. It's in the Bible, right? Your ignorance of scripture is I don't want to say embarrassing, but if you're going to be chiding people on how little they know about scripture, you need to make sure that you're actually aware of what is and isn't in scripture. Uh, And James, of course, is explicit about this as well. Uh, James 5, 14, 15, is any among you sick? Let him call for the presbyters of the church. That's the Greek word there, which is again, priests. Let him call for the, the, the presbyters, the priests of the church, the elders, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven. So this is a believer who has committed sins and those sins will be forgiven, uh, as he receives this anointing, uh, by the priest that involves oil. That's last rites. Asking Mary to intercede, asking the saints to intercede. So this is a video I shot a while back and I put a link in it right here and I'll put a link down below this video for you, uh, or down below this podcast. If anyone wants to listen to it or hear it, Uh, The channel is Authentic Christianity, and the title is Can the Saints and Angels Hear Us? Do they intercede? Uh, Can they intercede? Uh, Talking about it from a scriptural perspective. This This is 30 minutes long, and it is explicitly, other than I I briefly will reference um, the early church and inscriptions on tombs and and, and in the catacombs, outside of that, it's entirely scripturally based. Talking about all the places in scripture that tell us that they're aware of us. I'm gonna give you just a little snippet of that right now, but I could talk about this easily for a half an hour because I already did link in the description. Uh, In Hebrews 11, we're told we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That cloud of witnesses were all the people that had come before us in the Old Testament. Um, Hebrews, Hebrews 11, Um, actually, I guess that's Hebrews 12 says this because Hebrews 11, sorry, it's a typo. Um, Hebrews 11 is this run through of the, the big names of the old Testament. And then Hebrews, Hebrews 12, one says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what do witnesses do? They witness, right? They bear testimony. They, they, they see the thing happening. Um, In Revelation 5, we see the 24 elders in heaven presenting our prayers to God as incense. In Revelation 6, the martyrs in heaven, distinct from those elders, are aware of what's going on on earth before the resurrection. They see uh, that they've been martyred for their faith. Um, and that the fullness of justice hasn't yet come upon the earth. And they say, how long, O Lord, will it be uh, until the fullness of justice comes? Uh, Like the elders, also the saints, or sorry, the angels do the same thing in in Revelation 8. They present the prayers of the saints on earth as incense to God. And all of this follows on the Jewish idiom or the Jewish idea that comes from the Psalms, where you you praise the Lord with all the heavenly hosts and all of the angels. There's multiple Psalms that use that exact imagery. Praise him, all you heavens. Praise him, you heavenly hosts. uh, Praise him, all of his angels heavenly hosts and angels being distinct things um and ultimately this comes from people not understanding that god is the god of the living and not the god of the dead as jesus himself says to the sadducees we do have inscriptions on many ancient christian tombs asking for the deceased for their prayers also prayers on behalf of the deceased which we'll talk about here in a minute that would be purgatory um and ultimately, a lot of people say, well, this comes down to First Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. No Catholic is denying this. No person who asks the saints to intercede is denying this in the same way that if I ask you to say a prayer for me. I'm not denying this, but if you just read the four verses before that, we read Paul say this, first of all, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings, and for all in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. This is good, and it is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling us to intercede for each other. We have scriptural precedent that shows uh, those in heaven being aware of us and presenting our prayers to God. Um, And therefore, we have it on good conscience that the living who are truly living in Christ, uh, even though from our perspective here on the world, they are asleep in Christ. um, Nevertheless, Scripture is clear and replete with examples uh, of the dead being aware of what we're doing. And so we as Christians... uh, are confident in asking uh, any of the saints, including Mary, uh, who I would say is the chief or queen of the saints, and I'll explain that here in a couple minutes, uh, for their prayers for us. This is not worship; we are not worshiping the saints. We are simply asking. In fact, the word "pray" just means ask. Pray, tell me, did you think the word "worship" and the word "pray" were the same word? Because they're not, right? Your Honor, the defendant prays the court to have mercy. The, the Honor, Your Honor, the the defendant asks the court to to have mercy on him. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything more than that. Mary is the new Eve. Now, this one is a really fun one um, because this one is actually pretty clear in scripture in a lot of different ways. Um, the only groundwork we really need for this one is to see that Paul calls Jesus the new Adam. Sorry, I'm looking at myself more than I should because it's right there. So I'm going to put that up where it's not in the way of me reading. Um, so first off, we're told that Jesus is the new Adam. As in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. Adam, Adam in Hebrew just means the man, right? And Christ is called the new man right, repeatedly by Paul. So if Christ is the new Adam, it stands to reason that there would be a new Eve, because that's a pairing, Adam and Eve. And we're told that Eve became Adam's wife uh, and the mother of all of the living. Um, And we are told that Christ has a bride. Now, who is his bride? His bride is the church, right? Um, Now, be careful that you're not thinking about heavenly reality in a, in a purely carnal way and expect there to be lots of sex in heaven or whatnot. Jesus himself answers the Sadducees. Um, when they ask him about the woman who had married seven men, you know, whose wife will she be in heaven? It's a valid question. Um, and he says in heaven, they're not given to marriage in the same way that they are here in this world. So we have to understand that everything in this world is itself pointing towards, uh, eschatologically, um, what heaven will be like, right? The heavenly reality. Uh, and so marriage is just pointing towards that divine marriage between God and man that culminates in is it Revelation 21, 22, the, the wedding feast of the lamb, right? Um, but if Christ is the head of the church, as the husband is the head of the bride, then the church really is the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is going to be principally the church, right? Well, who was the very first member of the church who made everything else possible? It was Mary, right uh Mary was the very first Christian uh she was the first person to accept Christ into her heart and even into her womb, and it's almost the reverse of the original Adam and Eve. Adam came first, and Eve was taken from him, and from his flesh was was made up into a a full woman. Adam rejoices this one lasts this is bone of my bone flesh of my flesh um it's the exact opposite it's almost the undoing um in 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 jesus and in Mary because Mary temporally in time comes first and jesus comes out of her takes his flesh from her so it's almost the the exact undoing and in genesis three fifteen, we have this famous um passage in scripture we call it the proto evangelium which is a fancy greek name that just means the the first gospel um and in this Protoevangelium, we read that God says to the serpent, I will put enmity, distance, an immeasurable gap between you and the woman, and between her seed and your seed. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel. And the early church fathers uh, saw this as the first gospel, the promise of redemption. I've always found this passage so fascinating for a couple of reasons. This woman, first off, um, biologically, it's not the woman who has the seed. It's the man who has the seed. Um, You see this in a lot of ancient cultures, Greek and Latin, both semen or sperm uh, are words that literally mean seed right? Uh, So when we hear about the seed of the woman, I think that points to something a little outside of the norm of, uh, of, of conception, right? I think it points to a virginal conception. And we're told that the offspring of this woman would crush the head of the serpent. Well, we know who that really is. We know who the serpent is. Uh, we read about him in, in Revelation, I think nine, the the great dragon who was the ancient serpent who deceived the whole world. And he did deceive the whole world, both he does now currently, obviously, but he even did when the whole world was summed up in the one man, the one man who was created without original sin, Adam, who fell, you know, along with his wife. And, and in that case, also, Eve took the apple, uh, you know, the fruit, and she ate first right? But Paul tells us sin came into the world through Adam, because it was Adam who directly received the command from God, do not eat of the tree. Eve, we're not told in scripture, received it from God. Uh, We can presume, uh, since she knew the rule, that she received it from Adam. And in fact, the rule that she regurgitates to the serpent isn't the rule that God gave Adam. It's a slight change. God says, don't eat of the fruit. And Eve says, well, we must not eat of it or even touch it right so she changes the rule whether she's doing that on purpose or whether it's because she didn't know the rule entirety uh, or what but we know that it's Adam who, who received it from God and so sin comes to us through Adam Saint Paul is explicit on that right so this woman and her seed are uniquely pointing towards Mary and Christ and in fact it, it, one of the very first moments we see Jesus and Mary together in his adult life uh, is at the wedding feast to Cana in John chapter 2 and people intercede to Mary, they, they come to her for whatever reason, they say, we've run out of wine. And she goes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, Guinea, what is this between you and me? My time has not come yet. Now, it's not impossible to conceive of somebody referring to a woman as woman. He actually does this to the woman at the well. He calls her Gine. Uh It was not an in- inappropriate salutation for somebody that you didn't know. Uh, hey, man, come here. Hey, woman, come here. Right. But for your own mother, for a man who perfectly fulfills the law, um, to not dishonor his, his father and his mother, uh, to call her woman would be disrespectful unless it's a title. And so this is Jesus in the very first moments of his ministry, hearing the intercession that have come through Mary. And she tells him, Uh, They have no wine. He says, woman, what is this between you and me? My time has not come. And Mary, like a good Jewish mother, doesn't even respond at that point. She just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do, which is, of course, what always Mary is saying. Do whatever my son tells you to do. But Jesus, like a good, obedient Hebrew boy, listens to his mother. And when he listens to his mother he performs a miracle, making probably the best wine the world has ever seen for people had already been celebrating for a couple of days at a a wedding feast. So God has no problem with a little bit of libation here and there. Drunkenness, of course, is a a sin. Um, But uh, in the words of uh, Ben Franklin, God made wine uh, or wine is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy, I think is what he said. Some people put the word beer in there, but I think the original quote was wine. Anyway, And then Jesus on his deathbed or his death cross um, in his dying moments, he looks down at the beloved disciple, who, of course, is John. But also John is either there's three possibilities when John calls himself the beloved disciple all the time. Either a he's just being historically accurate, saying, well, Jesus happened to love me more. So I'm just going to call myself the beloved disciple. That seems kind of weird. He could be braggadocious. (laughs) I. Most of the beloved disciple, not the one that Jesus liked, or he could be being humble and actually removing himself so that the reader who is also a beloved disciple would be able to insert themselves into this passage. And I think that's the case. I think John is actually being humble. I think this is scriptural, giving us a nod, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy spirit to insert ourselves in that passage. Cause Jesus says, uh, woman, behold, your son, son, behold your mother. And from that day on the beloved disciple, Took the woman, took Mary into his house, and she became his his mother. Right. This also uh, underscores other things, like Mary not having other children because there would have been other children who could have taken care of her. John clearly was not one of her own children, so on and so forth. But Jesus, in his dying breath, says, "Woman, behold your son." Um, and this even goes even further because we're going to see in a minute, we're going to read revelation 12 and the very last lines of revelation 12. Revelation 12 starts with the woman clothed in heaven, wailing, giving birth to the child destined to rule all nations. So it's clearly Mary and Jesus here principally. Um, and it ends with the children of that woman are the ones that follow the words of Christ. And so the children of the woman who is, again, principally Mary, uh, who is the first in the church, the, the, the first of the body of Christ, right. Um, she is a stand in for the, the perfection towards which we all are seeking. We all should be, uh, aiming right. And I'm going to read, I, I didn't actually put a lot of the early church fathers quotes in here. Cause I know that you probably don't treat them as authoritative at all, but this is one I really like. First off, It's one of my namesakes. His name is Justin Martyr. Uh, He was writing in the year 150 AD, give or take, um, to a Jew, a Jewish man named Trifo. And he writes this. He, Christ, became man by the virgin in order that the disobedience which proceeded from the serpent might receive its destruction in the same manner in which it derived its origin. For Eve, who was a virgin and undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, brought forth disobedient and death the serpent, of course, being a fallen angel. But the Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced the good tidings to her, that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon her and overshadow her. Uh, The power of the Most High would overshadow her. Uh, And therefore the holy thing begotten of her is the Son of God. And she replied, Be it done unto me according to thy word. And by her has he been born, whom we have proved, so many of the scriptures refer, and by whom God destroys both the serpent and those angels and men who are like him but works deliverance from death for those who repent of their wickedness and upon and believe upon him so this is a first christian second 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 century uh christian uh, one or two generations removed from the apostles um doing apologetics work talking with a jew explaining who christ was and he's explicitly making this connection between mary and eve so again this is in scripture, right? All of this stuff is in scripture and is easily teased out of scripture as well. I could go a lot deeper into this, but this video is already 35 minutes long. And knowing that I'm only halfway done here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going on. Uh, Mary as the Ark. This one I'm going to talk as briefly as I can on, but I think it's still very, very beautiful. Um, and there's actually early church fathers, I didn't put one down here or not, um, but there's early church fathers who even say that that as the ark was made of incorrupt acacia wood, so too Mary was was kept um inviolate of any stain. Um this harkens to, you know, the um I will put enmity between the woman and 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 you, between your seed and and her seed. So there's a gap between the woman, whoever she is, uh, an insurmountable gap and and the serpent. He couldn't touch her. Um and it also just makes sense, right? Going back to Mary's the New Eve for just another second. Um, the Old Testament, the Old Covenants always foreshadow the New, um, and the New Covenant always supersedes them in all ways. And so if the Old Covenant began with one man and one woman free from sin, so too it makes sense. If the first new man, Jesus, is is free from sin, it would make sense that the, the second, the, the woman, uh, would also be in a similar position. So she fits that archetype as perfectly as possible. Anyway, um, here's the thing. So uh, we know that the Ark carried a couple things. It carried the manna, which was the bread that came down from heaven. And we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, Trogon, uh, has life in them. If you do not eat my, blood, blood, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have not life in you. And that's a phrase, eating the flesh and drinking the blood. You can find it in scripture used metaphorically. It means to deride and to hate and to revile. So if Jesus is using those words figuratively, uh, he's telling us to hate him in order to have eternal life. And I don't think that's what he was going for. Uh, in a court, it had the, also the tablets, the, the Ten Commandments, the tablets, the stone law um, written by the finger of God. And of course, Jesus comes to fulfill, not abolish, but to fulfill the law. And of course, the high priest staff that had budded to show his authority and Jesus is the one to one true high priest. So Mary carries all these things in her. We're told that the glory cloud of the Lord uh, overshadowed the ark uh, and the same word here in, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. That ninety percent of your Old Testament quotes, the New Testament come from. That the old, the apostles would have used the same word. There is used when the angel says to Mary, "The power of the Most High will overshadow you." Luke, in fact, goes on, uh, and that comes from Luke. Luke one, um, Luke gives us a, a series of travels from Mary that parallel uh, and, and call back the story of the ark traveling in. Uh, in Second Samuel six, and so you'll see, um, Luke does make this very conspicuous comparison. Um, in Luke uh, one thirty nine, we see in these verses, Mary, the ark arose and went. David arose and went. Uh, and uh, a couple of verses later, uh, King David, John the Baptist, they leap for joy in front of the ark um, you know, when when the the voice of Mary reaches Elizabeth ears, the Elizabeth ears, the, the, the babe in her womb leaps for joy, John, the Baptist, uh, and King David leapt for joy when the ark came to him. Uh, David asked, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Elizabeth asked, how can the mother of my Lord come to me? Um, and then we see them in the hill country of Judea remaining for three months, Mary in the hill country and the ark as well, uh, in the, in the hill country. Um, and then we see in revelation 11 and 12 and bear in mind, again, I say this in some of my videos, um, The, the numbers and the chapters were not original to the text. Those were added significantly later. I suspect you know that, but just for the sake of it. So sometimes we think we see a distinct cutoff point that doesn't really exist. So Revelation 11 ends with this line, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. So all of a sudden the Jews who've been missing the Ark of the Covenant for many, many, many years see in this vision, the Ark of the Covenant. And if you were a Jew, you'd be like, oh, that's really exciting. Tell me more about the Ark. Where is it? Is it going to come back to us? God's dwelling on among us. And then it's immediately juxtaposed with this, and the great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was with child, and she cried aloud as she gave birth to the child uh, in in delivery, right? Um, And this woman, so a lot of people will say, "I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt here, you might be saying this yourself, oh, that woman represents, Israel, right? Sure, she does, right? Uh, first off, we know in scripture, especially in the book of Revelation, which is steeped in a lot of visual imagery, um, you can have things that mean multiple things. We're told a few chapters later, I think it's in se- it's around 17, that there's there's seven hills, which are seven mountains, but also seven or seven mountains that are seven hills, but also seven kings, right? So it's one image means two different things. So there's no reason to not understand figuratively, Uh, that this woman represents Israel, but even literally Mary is the culmination of Israel, right? She is the most perfect Israelite that ever existed other than her son, who was literally God incarnate, right? Um, And if you read Revelation 12, there's, there's four key players in Revelation 12. There is the woman, there is the child that she bears, there is the dragon, and there is the angel. Now, we know for a fact that the angel is Michael, the archangel, it says it right there. He's Michael, the archangel, he wages war on the devil. We know that the the dragon is the devil, the ancient serpent who deceived the whole world, right? So principally, the angel, Michael is a one to one correspondence. The dragon is a one to one correspondence. The child we know is Jesus, one to one correspondence, and that leaves the woman. If these three are all a one-to-one correspondence, it makes sense to read this exact same narrative, understanding that the woman, at least in some capacity, is a one-to-one correspondence as well. And so Mary juxtaposed with the Ark in this image, the woman who bears the child destined to rule all nations with an iron rod, is the new Ark, right? It's not that hard. It's in scripture. The early church fathers saw this. Uh, I'm going to pause for a second. There we go. Sorry. I had to take a take a drink. 40 minutes of talking. <laughs> And now we get to the papacy. Um, okay, first off, there's a hierarch- hierarchical church. We see this explicitly in multiple places. There were bishops, there were priests, and there were deacons. Uh, Episcopoi, overseers, literally is what that word means. Presbyteroi, uh, which again, the old English is just a contraction of this for priest, which is interesting because the elders are distinct from the Jewish priests, the high priests, et cetera, right? Hyreis uh, is the the Greek word. And so they never claim to be Hyreis, but they are. Presbyters, uh, presbyteroi and so what we have to this day are those the, the the successors of those people, the the priests appointed by the bishops who are the descendants of the the apostles, and of course we have the deacons. We see in. Acts 1, the very first thing the apostles do is they elect a successor to Judas, um, saying another must take his office. And an office is the type of thing that outlasts the office holder. Uh, and so when they do that, it tells us that these offices are not meant to simply pass away. So they elect Matthias uh, as the successor to Judas. Later, Paul is also uh, brought in as an apostle, even though he clearly wasn't present with them, which was the criteria they used for Matthias. Uh, And then we see that they appoint other people as episcopoi or overseers of the church. Timothy and Titus, of course, are are two excellent examples. Uh, There are others as well. Um, And we see that there are Um, limitations on some of these things, right? So we're told that the priests, for instance, um, they had to be careful and not lay hands on too readily uh, in ordaining priests because laying on of hands is actually imports one of two different sacraments, either confirmation as we saw above uh, or the ordination, um, laying on hands to to ordain people to the priesthood. And, And Paul gives out guidelines, you know, priest needs to be, if he's married, the husband of one wife, that's not because there was a rampant polygamy at the time. It's because he can't remarry. There were limits on what they can do. Uh and there have been ever since the the very beginning of the church, right? And the diaconoi. So we see in the early church there is this uh established hierarchy. Um And then we see one of the 12 had authority beyond the authority the others have. Uh, So the most famous passage, I'm sure you're aware of this is is Matthew 16 verses 15 to 19. Uh, And in that passage, Jesus says, who people say that I am, And the apostles say, well, some say, I love this. I mentioned this in the saints video. Some say you're John the Baptist, who's dead, uh, or Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And so they obviously, the Jews at the time, thought that the dead could come back and and be aware, uh, kind of like Saul or Samuel came back and appeared to Saul, even though it was through an an unauthorized medium, you know, the witch of Endor, right? Um, Just to warn you, some Catholics do know the Bible. (laughs) I can't quote chapter and verse on everything, but we know it better than you might think. Anyway, so in Matthew 16, we see that uh, it's Peter who stands up and speaks. He says, you are the Christ, the anointed, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, a threefold blessing. And this threefold blessing is itself each part in three parts. The blessing, an explanation, and a further explanation. And it follows a very distinct pattern. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are rock, you are Petros. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I give to you the keys of the kingdom that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven right so peter alone is given this very unique authority symbolized by the keys now two chapters later in matthew 18 we see the other 11 with peter being present all receive a similar binding and loosing authority this is actually done in the context of forgiving sins in fact in in matthew um, 18, but this idea of binding and loosing also hearkens to the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. Jesus even references it in Matthew 23 when he says the scribes or the Pharisees, they bind upon the people things that they are not themselves willing to do. They bind up these heavy burdens and they don't lift a finger to help the people, right? Um, but the people were obliged to do it because they sat on the seat of Moses. He says, therefore, do what they say, but not what they do, for they they preach, but they don't practice. Um, And so they had legitimate authority that they you had to follow at least until the church was put fully in place. And that happens at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends upon the church, the birthday of the church, if you will. So Peter alone is given the keys to the kingdom. Now, these keys are prefigured in the Old Testament. If you were a first century Jew, even if you thought Jesus was totally off his rocker, you thought he was absolutely crazy. and There's no way this guy is the son of God or anything like that, even if you believe that you would understand the significance of a man who thought he was the king of kings who thought he was the Davidic heir, the the heir of the line of David, the the righteous shoot of the stump of Jesse, right? If he said he had an inner quorum of people he was giving authority to, to bind and loose. And to one of them, he said, I'm going to give you the keys, you would understand emphatically that what he's doing is he's setting up a prime minister, or a chief steward, The, the king's job was to be away. And fighting for the the protection and the advancement of his kingdom. In fact, David gets in trouble one time when he's not doing that. And all of his people are out fighting and he's on the rooftops and he sees a pretty girl, Bathsheba and haba haba haba. And eventually he falls into grave sin and even gets her husband killed to, to cover up his sin. Uh, Not a good thing for a man after the heart of God, but David at least repents. And and that's what makes him after the heart of God. Other men may not have repented, they may have just uh, persisted in their obstinacy, right. Um, But so we know, and Isaiah gives us this imagery that the Davidic king, when the king was away, he would leave stewards in his stead. And these stewards had the authority of the king. Now they weren't exercising their own authority. They were exercising the authority of the king, but sometimes your stewards would would fight and and not come to an agreement. Your your ministers would fight. And so one of them was elevated and given a symbol of the authority of the king to make binding decisions that all of the other ones had to follow. And can you guess what the symbol of that authority was? It was the keys to the kingdom. And so we see in Isaiah 20, the following passage, actually, I think it's 22. I copied it. I think I put it down the wrong. Anyway, it's either 20 or 22 uh, seven, fifteen, and following. So, if it's not in twenty-two, it's in twenty. Uh, Thus says the Lord of Hosts. This is a defrocking ceremony. So, one guy is actually thrust out of an office, and the other guy is put into it. But all of this is pointing towards in this prophetic. Moment, uh, by Isaiah, is pointing towards what's going to happen. Say this to the steward Shebna, who's over the house: uh, What have you to do here? And to whom, who, and, and whom have you here that you have hewn here a tomb for yourself? You who have hewn a tomb on the height and carved habituation for yourself on the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man! He will seize firmly on you and whirl you around and throw you like a ball into the wild land. There you will die, and there shall be your splendid chariots and there's you of your master's house. So this is a steward who is not doing his job right. He's being thrust out. And then it says this, I will thrust you from your office and you will be cast down from your station and I will summon my servant like on the day. I will clothe him with your robe. I will bind him with your girdle and I will commit your authority into his hand. So he had real authority. Uh, he will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of David. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. What he opens, no one will shut what he shuts, no one will open. I will fasten him like a peg in a sure spot and a sure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole weight of his father's house, the offspring and every issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And in that day, the Lord of hosts says the peg that was fastened in a sure place uh, will give way and will be cut down. And the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. So he's literally saying that he is going to kick uh a Eli- kick Shedna out of the place and put Eliakim in. So And then he tells you what this authority means. The authority is the the house, is the keys. This authority is whatever he binds, no one will shut, will loose, whatever he opens, no one will shut. Uh, This is is Hebrew translated into English as opposed to Greek, but it's basically the same thing. Here's the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you open, no one will shut. Whatever you shut, no one will open. Whatever you bind, no one will loose. Whatever you loose, no one will bind. Only for Peter, it's even better because he gets two keys and the keys are the keys to the heavenly kingdom and also the earthly kingdom. And thus Jesus can say, whatever you bind on earth is already bound, in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. So that right there is enough uh, to establish the Petrine authority, but we can go even further. In fact, uh, in Matthew, uh, the end of Matthew 9, running into Matthew 10, and one of those cutoffs that doesn't make a lot of sense to be there. Um, what we see is it says Jesus looks around at the people sees they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he says to the apostles, pray that the master of the harvest gone, um, the, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few, pray the master of the harvest, he will send out more workers. And then he called his 12. First, Simon called Peter and his brother, Andrew, and James and john, and so on and so forth. Matthew calls Peter Protos first. Now we know that Peter wasn't first because Jesus finds Andrew, Andrew finds Jesus first, and then Andrew brings Jesus to Peter. And the moment Jesus meets him, this is in in, in john 142. The moment Jesus meets Peter, he gives him that new name, Peter, rock, Petros, you will be called Peter, you will know, Simon or if somebody came up to you the very first time you met them, and like, hey, you know what, your name is Rocky. Now, you'd be like, what's that all about? Right. Um, but of course, we see this. Um, opened to us and our understanding in, in Matthew 16. G, uh, Peter is always mentioned first in every list of the Gospels. Um, Judas is always mentioned last. Um, there's a whole bunch of other reasons as well I could give to this. I'm just going to be quick about this. Um, I think one of the most interesting ones is, I think Peter is mentioned by name around 200 times in the New Testament. The next most common apostle is the beloved disciple John, who's mentioned a total of 40 times. And if you add up all of the other apostles together, Peter is mentioned more than all of them. Peter is seen very clearly as the leader in the church, and he's mentioned in almost every listing first. He's listened, every mention, every listing of the apostles he's mentioned first. And the only times he's not mentioned first in other cases is when either the narrative it, there's like two times by Paul. One of them is in Galatians, where Peter was actually you know wrong, and and so Paul's like I was there with John and with Peter, and Peter was wrong because he was fearing the circumcised, and so Paul rebukes Peter correctly for for not for for a moral sin for a failing, and nobody thinks the Pope can't sin. Um, and then the other time he actually says. You know uh, paul paul puts himself last he's very self-deprecating i'm the least of the apostles he says all the time and at one point he says you know uh, i'm trying to think of the exact listing the word he says you know do you follow um some some say i follow uh he puts it in reverse order he says i follow paul or i follow apollos or i follow cephas peter or i follow christ uh and so he puts them in this ascending order and so he says there's me the lowest of the apostles there's apollos this, You know regular handsome fellow who's preaching the gospel there's peter and then there's christ right and he says all of us are baptized into the baptism of christ and so on and so forth and so we see all just explicitly this is the case early church councils uh east and west acknowledged the authority of the pope uh the bishop of rome the successor of peter Uh, Peter's, his office landed there as well. The early church fathers from the first and second century, all attest to this as well. I could give you those if you want. Uh, I'm not going to do it in this video because now we're, we're already pushing on an hour long and I still have a bit more to go, but hopefully this is helping so far. Uh, purgatory. Oh, 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 I don't want to go on too far because I just gave away my punchline purgatory. Jesus teaches it in Luke chapter 12. Paul teaches it in first Corinthians three. And it just makes sense. Jesus teaches it in Luke 12, multiple different times. In fact, I'm going to pull this up. Um, Luke 12. I do the RSV just cause it's a more literal translation. You can look at this in whatever Bible you want. He actually gives four different parables here, um, that are all eschatological dealing with the end times, uh, and salvation. In fact, you know what? I'll put a link to this as well because if you go to YouTube and look up "Jesus teaches purgatory," you're going to find uh, this one right here is uh, put out by me. There's another one by Dr. Brant Petrie, who's a scriptural scholar. Honestly, listen to his instead of listening to mine. He's got far more listeners anyway, uh, but he actually talks about this. Um, but I talk about this. As well, Jesus teaches it four different ways in in the the, the process of Luke 12. Um, And so uh, the big one, the one that always sticks out most to me, though, is this one right here. Jesus, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, are you telling this parable for us, for everyone or for, for just for us? And the Lord said, who's the faithful and wise steward? He actually refers to, G, to, to Peter as the wise steward, you know, the, the chief steward of the house to whom his master will set over his house to give them a portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant. He, and he's going to give four, four possibilities here. Blessed is the servant who, when his master comes, finds him doing what he wanted him to do. Truly, I say he will set him over all of his possessions. But, too, if that servant says to himself, the master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants and eat and drink and be drunk, the master of the servant will come on that day when he doesn't expect him. and an hour, he doesn't know, and he will punish him uh, and put him with the unfaithful. The word there literally is dichotomeo. He will cut him in half uh, and put him with the unbelievers. So that's like going to hell, right? To be cut in half and put with the unbelievers. He's cast out and, and killed. But then he gives two more and the servant who knew his master's will, but did not make ready or act accordingly shall receive a severe beating. But he who did not know and did what deserved a beating shall receive only a light beating who get off you know, with just a, a minor punishment. Everyone uh, to whom much is given of him, much will be required to him who men commit much. They demand much the more. And so this little passage here and he gives a couple more here. Right. He talks about uh, settling with your opponent. Um, before you go to jail, (laughs) Uh, you know, before you, as you go with your accuser to the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer. The officer put you into prison. Um, and the word here, the wording here is a similar word for the accuser, um, that is used for Satan. I tell you, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. All of these, and I talk about this a lot more in that video. So I'm just giving you a really brief summary are talking about, um, the end times and this ability to uh in this in this account up here um be punished but not tossed out so the one who went against the will of the master is punished he's cut in half and and sent out but then the one who the the two who didn't know what they should have been doing they receive a punishment the one who knew and didn't do it receives a severe punishment the one who didn't know uh, and didn't do it gets off pretty light. Now, this is a parable. It doesn't always mean that everything is exactly literally lining up one-to-one. Um, so whether this punishment is a punishment punishment or just a change is yet to be seen. And I'll explain what I mean here in a minute. Uh, if we go to first Corinthians, we see Paul speaking of the day, um, the day of judgment, disclosing the works of every man, um, of every man. Let's see here. There we go. Um, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation another man is building upon it. Let each man take care how he builds upon it for no other foundation can one lay other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if one builds on the foundation with gold, silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. So we have two sets of three here. Each man's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sorts of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built upon the foundation survives, he receives a reward. If any man's work is burned up, but he has that foundation of Christ, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so Paul is speaking of this burning off because God is, is is called a refining fire, right? Um, he's talking about this change that occurs in us where all of the impurities are are purged. And so I also have a video just says purgatory makes sense. And you believe in it, you're welcome to watch that one as well. I might link all of these below if I think about it um, below this video or in, in the podcast, you guys are welcome to watch them on YouTube. And if you're there, feel free to like, subscribe and share and all that stuff, right? Um, But it just makes sense, right? Most of us, um, I know I, for a, a fact, struggle with sin even this day. John tells us in his epistle, if we say we have no sin, we we lie, right? We all struggle with sin, even in this day. James above, uh, when I was talking earlier, says the the sins of the the sick man, if he's anointed by the presbyters, will will be forgiven. Um, We see Jesus giving his apostles authority to to forgive sins. This makes the presumption that people are still sinning and they still need help um, because we still have damaged human nature. Uh, Even though the the stain of original sin is washed and and the process is is begun in baptism of of restoring us, we're not yet that in this life, fully restored. And so when we die, the moment you die, you step into eternity, you will know where you're going. um, The moment you die, if you're going up or going down, so to speak. Um, But you're not yet fully resurrected. Thus, we see the martyrs in Revelation uh, six; they seem to be actually holding a grudge. Still, they're like, "How long, O oh Lord, will you will you wait before you smite the people that that killed us?" Right? You know, we want we want vengeance, and I feel like vengeance isn't quite the thing that we want in heaven. Though maybe you know, if you have a fully aligned understanding of right and wrong, you'll see what vengeance really is from the eyes of the Lord, and and you'll want the the just thing. But I, I think that they're not yet fully perfected. Um, but nevertheless. In the new resurrection, we will be made perfect as we were designed to be, right? In the new heaven, you won't sin. Nothing unclean, as Revelation says, Revelation 22, I think, nothing unclean can enter heaven or no, 1920. It's in there somewhere. Anyway, Google the phrase. <laughs> nothing unclean can enter heaven. Um, and so when you die, you die attached to sin. In heaven, you will no longer be attached to sin. So some change happens between the moment of your death when you step into eternity, and the moment of the ultimate resurrection, when you are made perfect. You are cleansed of any of your attachment to sin. Another word would be purged. You are purged or cleansed of your attachments to sin. And this is all Catholics ever mean. When they speak of purgatory. Now, there are lots of ways, there are lots of parables. Um, and Jesus himself has some pretty choice words and places um, that people have kind of drawn to say, well, purgatory must be pretty intense, right? It must be painful. We don't know. We really don't know. We have no positive revelation on the exact nature of what it is. We just know that it happens and it makes sense. And in fact, you yourself believe it because you don't believe we're going to be sinning in heaven. And I don't think you believe that you don't sin uh, in this life. And so, from the moment of death to the moment of resurrection, some change happens. And that's all we mean by purgatory. um next one here comes my concession novenas you got me i cannot find in scripture anywhere an explicit command to pray for 9 days uh or 9 hours or 9 blanks uh a set of prayers i can't find it now i can find lots of prayers in scripture i can find all the psalms and if you were to pray the psalms one a day you would pray for 150 days right or 151 depending on how you how you number them um and so I, I can certainly see, you know, the, what is that, uh, septa, uh, sesqu- sesquicentennial, uh, 150 years. Yeah. The ses- sesquicentennial prayer <laughs> prayer or sesquicent- what annual is the, is the year. So sesquicentennial, I don't know, whatever, 150 day prayer, right. You can find something like that. Um, but I can't find, I can't find no in scripture. You got me. You got me. It's not there. But I think that Christian liberty allows us to find ways to pray. I think as long as you're praying, that's what matters. For Many people, they don't pray every single day. Um, most of us are lucky if we get in, you know, five or ten minutes of prayer in a day. We should be praying, as Paul says, unceasingly, which would be well more than the nine days. But, you know, certainly setting out for nine intentional days and, and and praying about something. There's there's no scriptural injunction that prohibits that, right? Um, you're welcome to to dis- disagree with me. If you if you find scripture that says don't be persistent in your prayer, I'm willing to I'm willing to to submit. You know, if you show me that, you know, that's cool. I'll stop saying O no Venus. Um I don't think it's in there though, but you're welcome to show me. So you got me there. Uh, lastly, monks and nuns. So this one, I'm not going to say a whole lot about uh, it kind of falls under novenas, there are ways of living that don't have to be explicit in Scripture. It also says nothing about being a digital marketer, which is what I do by trade. Um, doesn't mean I can't find a, a living uh, and, and and make my way in the world being a digital marketer. Uh, there's lots of things that aren't mentioned in Scripture that aren't explicitly forbidden. But honestly, something you might be amazed to see is we actually do see New Testament nuns. Um, I'm going to move this here and I'm going to pull this up really quickly. So this is in First Timothy. I think this is the right chapter. If not, I'll, I'll pause.